All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you joining us at home, which in this case is all of you, because I'm sitting here in front of an empty room, uh, mourning and lamenting that. It may not seem like it. Um, well, I suppose that this is just the way it is. You know, if you're not, if you don't, if you don't speak publicly, you kind of, you kind of sort of get this assumption that it's an easy thing to do, which of course it isn't. I mean, even very good public speakers, which I certainly am not, uh, they still get uneasy. It's still not always natural. This kind of thing. Uh, but how much more so when you're trying to, you're trying to preach or teach to an empty room? <laughs> May God remove this from us. This is uh, a heavy burden to bear. You know, studying God's Word in terms, of, in terms of church, this is a communal event. and We're meant to feed off one another. And I know from time to time <laughs> my energy dies and I can see and watch it dying, but I can't do anything about it because I can't feed off your energy and your passion for God's Word and the dialogue and exchange that we can have back and forth. I'm not the, the first one by any stretch to ponder this, but even as the, the Godhead is one and the person's three, there's dialogue, communication, exchange between those three. And as we are made in the image of that uh, three in one and one in three, we are meant to be together and we are meant to have discourse and dialogue between us. So what a difficult burden this is to uh, have, have way too much monologue. But the Word of God does not uh, go out for no purpose. It does not return to Him void. So I pray that this Word today is fruitful to you nonetheless. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we left off uh, in Revelation chapter 6. And as you recall, way, way a long time ago when we started this book, this book is intended to be read in the context of divine service, and all in one shot. And so I'm sorry to be redundant so frequently in these lectures, but we have to be brought back up to speed. It's absolutely essential lest we take things out of context, not see the bigger picture, lose sight of, of where we truly are in this apocalypse, this revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you recall, the, the climax of Revelation heretofore has been chapter 5, where the Lamb who stands as one having been slain, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, he alone is worthy to, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, take from his right hand the scroll, open the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, thus, thus bringing about the salvation of mankind, not the Jews only, but mankind, and not just the restoration of some sort of narrow political nation state, but the restoration of the very heavens and the earth. And in order for this to be accomplished, uh, there, has to be, there has to be great, uh, great appeal to sinful men to repent. And that great appeal is seen immediately upon the opening of the first four seals 
governed and guided by the four living creatures. Uh, these four horsemen proceed forth. And again, the directionality is, is fascinating. But they don't have their origin in earth. They have their origin in heaven, where the Lamb is, where he's opening the seals. And then come forth uh, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often called. Um, and, and they wreak havoc on the world. So that's where we've been looking at in chapter 6. You can see that right away at chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and as I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, etc., etc. This is all flowing from Christ through the four living creatures and is entirely in their control, in their power. Uh, they're setting the bounds. They're even loosing them for God's good purposes, as we said just a moment ago, to drive men to repentance. And that's precisely how God deals with us. First, very tenderly and very compassionately with great, great long-suffering, great patient endurance. Uh, he suffers our, our neglect of his word, our despising of his word, subtle at first, then not so subtle, and then simply rejection. And he, in a very, very loving, measured, fatherly way, simply turns up the dial, turns up the heat louder and louder until finally he can be heard by those who will hear. And so that's really um, the context of the loosing of these seven, or these, these four horses, ultimately the seven seals, but these four horses and their riders. As we said um, last week, just by way of review, we have the, the white horse. He's given... Um, to conquer and for conquering, and, and we've seen how one horse kind of flows into the other, so we might say that this is tyranny. And then on comes the next, the bright red horse. He takes peace from the earth, so where there's tyranny and conquering, then there's bloodshed, the bright redness of the coat of the horse, um, bloodshed. And then what follows, the third um, is a black horse. There is a, He's got the scales in his hand. Again, these aren't the scales of justice. These are the scales of... Uh, economy. And so what you have here is uh, scarcity of food, and those, those food groups that are abundant, oil and wine, are suddenly scarce and to be protected. Um, very, very high cost of food because of its scarcity. So again, uh, tyranny, conquering, warfare, bloodshed, uh, famine, scarcity. This is the flow. And then finally, last but not least, the green or pale horse. Um, it really is, it really is um, meant to be like the color of a corpse. That's the idea. Um, so this, this horse that's the color of the corpse and its rider is death. So what comes is death. And then, of course, what follows death is Hades. Um, and, of course, beautifully, beautifully, you have, yeah, the rider's name is death and Hades follows him. That's verse 8. And earlier, earlier you have Jesus himself saying, I have the key to death in Hades. So this is such a, such a beautiful reassurance for us as Christians. I mean, this revelation isn't given to terrify, to terrify us. We who are repentant, we who acknowledge and confess our sins weekly, if not daily, before God, 
we who are cleansed by the blood of Christ and trust in that blood and nothing else, uh, this isn't meant to terrify us in the least. It's meant to comfort us in the sense of these, these things that go on in the world are all within God's control. They're all given by God for His purposes. And even if we were to be swallowed up in them, so to speak, swallowed up in war or bloodshed or famine and, of course, ultimately death, our Lord Jesus is the one who has the key of death in Hades. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus promises. So even as our bodies go into the grave, we don't die, and neither do our loved ones. So there's great, great comfort to be taken in these words paradoxically. But that's how all of Revelation is. So all of Revelation is. If you take it out of context, if you read it in the way that your average American reads it, it's doom and gloom and horror. It's not meant to be such for the children of God. All right. Well, that takes us through uh, the first of the four seals and over into chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lord Jesus opens the, the fifth seal. So, in our mind's eye, as the seal is opened and the events take us down to what's happening on the earth, we're always returned back to the throne room with the opening of the next seal. So that's what I've, I meant when I've said, I think, week after week now, that the center of revelation is the throne room, the one upon the throne, the lamb with the seven eyes and seven horns, and the sevenfold torches, the sevenfold candelabra, the, the menorah of the Holy Spirit, all right there. That's where the action is centered, it's from where the action flows, and back to where the action leads. And so really, the, I mean, visually speaking, structurally speaking, this is the hub of Revelation. Now, this is the hub textually of the scriptures, because after all, it is a scroll being opened. And so it's the hub of the scriptures. It's the hub of the liturgy, because Revelation, as we have said and seen, is a liturgical book. It's written in the context of an earthly liturgy. Then when John is taken up into heaven, it's written in the context of a heavenly liturgy. And so all the events that happen are liturgical events. And then these events, which are textual or literary in nature, and liturgical, or uh, as we would say, divine service-oriented in nature, um, then, then these events are also just reality, just what happens. And so we cannot separate these three things, the, the textual, the liturgical, and the reality. They're all, they're all one. And that's, that's where Revelation, uh, in particular, really, really takes, on a, takes on a bearing that's indistinguishable from the reality around us. What it is doing for us is interpreting the reality around us. Now, of course, it was written for those Christians in the first century, so most acutely it's interpreting the, the reality around them, the reality around the church in the first and early second century. And then by, by kind of broadening it out and applying the themes more loosely, more thematically, less specifically, um, they come true for the whole church. But this is, this is teaching us to see reality the way heaven sees reality, the way God and his angels and his saints in heaven see reality and, and to join them in that vision. So it's Jesus exegeting for us the scroll. It's Jesus exegeting for us the reality in which we live. All right, well, 
We simply don't want to lose sight of these things. I probably won't repeat, <laughs> repeat them every Sunday. I'll try not to, but I want to uh, because it's so important and it's so counter-cultural and counter the majority reading of this, of this text. All right, well, on to verse 9 in chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, so he being Jesus, the Lamb, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, see how it's liturgical, uh, see how the, the, even though you have a throne of God, um, this is a, this is a cathedra, it's a chair, and the context, it's not, like, how would you put it? The throne room and the sanctuary are indistinguishable. It's not like the throne room's over here and the sanctuary's over here and the courtroom's over there. They're all one. They're all one. So there we see there's an altar. And what we're going to see throughout Revelation is that this is not the altar of the Holocaust. Um, this is the altar, that is the altar of the, the offering and the daily offerings where the blood is shed. Because that altar is replaced by the cross. And that altar is put away. It is it is once and for all, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. So then, what altar is this? And we'll, we'll see this, by the way, if you just pay attention to the altar as you go throughout uh, Revelation, this becomes quite clear. In fact, in Reardon's commentary, he may have something. I'll check in just a minute. Uh, but this is really properly understood, the altar of incense, which is the only ongoing altar, the altar of praise and thanksgiving, the prayers of the saints, of angels, archangels, the whole company of heaven and earth, all who have, all who are marked by the name of Jesus, all who confess His name, and serve God. Um, this is this is the the great uh, altar of incense that rises day and night before the Lord. So when we see uh, here, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. That's the altar we're talking about, the altar of incense and for the witness they had borne. Now, it's interesting that he sees, their, uh, he sees the souls, okay? And again, I think that this is counterintuitive for us, and it is worth, it is worth uh, leaning into the words here. Um, souls are visible. As the church fathers basically universal, I kind of thought, <laughs> I kind of thought in studying Revelation, I was on my own on this, and then I found it just entirely throughout the church fathers, that the way a, so, <laughs> so a blow to my ego that I wasn't original, um, but actually not, actually great rejoicing that it's a truly small c Catholic idea. Uh, but what does your soul look like? Your body. And we're going to see that come up in Revelation 7 as we turn into the next chapter. But um, you can see a soul. We often think of souls as, you know, invisible or something like this, or, uh, nebulous or a part of who we are, not who we are, and, and all of those statements are, are just simply uh, inaccurate, I think, in one way, shape, or form. All right, so he sees under the altar the souls. That also gives us some perspective, perhaps, on the size, down around the base of the altar. I don't want to make too big of a deal about that, but the, the kind of size and scope you get in Revelation is very interesting. It's kind of fluid because at times you get the impression of it almost being intimate, almost sanctuary-like, but uh, like I'm talking about your local congregation, not your local megachurch. <laughs> and then um, at other times, it's completely cosmic and huge and otherworldly, and it just, it probably is that predominantly. And here would be, 
Here would be an, an example of that, where the souls are all around this altar. It must be a rather large altar, particularly if it's all of the martyrs, those who had been slain for the word of God. And the witness, there's the, the martyr word, that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Notice that they're saying it together. They cried out with a loud voice, so it's liturgical. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Ah, I love this statement. I love this statement because it absolutely blows to smithereens so many 20th century errors in terms of our perception of Christianity. I could dwell here for much longer than I need to. I'll try to speed it along for your sake. But look at this. I mean, in the first place, most superficially, they're crying out for vengeance, for justice, which we are so frequently told in modern Christianity is wrong. This demonstrates that holy saints, free of their sinful natures, in heaven, are crying out for this. It cannot be wrong. Furthermore, the way God responds to them shows that it is not wrong. He by no means begrudges them this or chastises them for this. Remember that scripture, it doesn't say vengeance is wrong. It says vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So what we, our problem with vengeance is we want to take it into our own hands. We want to enact God's justice now, and that's forbidden to us. That's forbidden to us by our Lord Jesus who says, uh, pray for your enemies you know, and bless those who persecute you. I think I've got that reversed. Bless your enemies and pray for those who persecute you um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, so that's, that's our attitude toward them, that they would be spared, that they would repent, that they would um, not have their sins held against them just as our Father. We do not want him to hold our sins against us. You know, we all, we all struggle with um, forgiveness, but like, here's sort of ground zero. Do you want that person to go to everlasting hell? If so, uh, you got some thinking to do. Because that person is purchased by the same blood that you're purchased, and their salvation is on the ba same basis as your salvation. But if you say, no, I don't want them, I don't want them to go to everlasting darkness and hell, that is a foundation for forgiveness. That is a foundation for forgiveness. Forgiveness is much more than that, but hey, upon that foundation you can build. And so, so there's, a, uh, there's a desire for us to um, love our enemies, bless our enemies, pray for those who uh, persecute us. Um, and if there's vengeance that needs to be meted out, that's the Lord's business. And so here, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Um, certainly nothing wrong, nothing wrong with um, these saints desiring that God set things right. And of course, you know, I mean, just as a thought experiment, which of the martyrs would say, you know, oh, this man, this man put me to death, but he's he's uh, repented and come to the Lord Jesus. I don't accept him. <laughs> no martyr's going to say that. 
No martyr's going to say that. We're all going to, you know, all the martyrs are going to say what, what Jesus says. Um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And of course, if they reject him unto the end, well, then so be it. So uh, there's this crying out. And of course, then what else do we have? Um, we have time once again in heaven. How long? We've seen day and night in heaven. We've seen time. We'll continue to see that aspect in heaven. So this too uh, frees us from our delusion that heaven is some sort of nude eternity where we're just blasted off into uh, complete nether and disconnect from the things of the world. No, the cosmos are those things visible and invisible. And heaven is simply what is to us on earth an invisible part of the creation. And the creation is all moving together as one. No doubt about it. Well, maybe that's sufficient. Maybe those are the main points I wanted to get across. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Fascinating here because they're not given anything different than what all the saints are given. The consolation of the martyrs it's the consolation of the baptized. And this is a beautiful and subtle statement that in baptism, um, where we are clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness, as Paul says, you know, all you who have been baptized have, have put on Christ. You've clothed yourself in Christ. It's the white robe of his righteousness. That that, bapti that, that baptism and baptismal grace is sufficient for all things, including martyrdom and including whatever... Uh, pains and torments were therein. And I'm not even talking here physically as much as I'm talking about, you know, the, the parting from those that you love and that, and that kind of thing, those deeper things. Um, baptism is what heals that. So they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And there too we glimpse um, heaven as rest. What kind of rest though? Not idleness. It's, it's a liturgical rest. They're in the throne room of God. They're so near to God, they're at the altar. They're crying out. They're partaking of the liturgy. They're aware. I mean, maybe I've got to even start there because we've got so many bad ideas about heaven. They're aware. And you get the sense, too, that everything in, in heaven is every bit as real as it is here on earth, perhaps even more so because those in heaven are freed from the delusions and illusions that plague us here on earth. I can't remember what book it is off the top of my head now where C.S. Lewis talks about the souls getting off the bus and stepping on the, the grass of heaven and the grass is sharp to them because, and his point is that, that heaven is more real than they are. At least I think that's his point. And that's, you know, that's, very, very much what we ought to have in mind as we go into heaven. We're not losing things. Things aren't getting foggy. We're not getting lobotomized. We're not losing vision. In fact, if there's anything, it's precisely the opposite. Things get sharper, clearer, more hard, more real, more concrete, more obvious and plain, enlightened with light everywhere that our eyes can see. Whereas now we look through a mirror dimly and dwell in darkness, etc., so heaven is an upgrade in every way. All right, they're given the white robe. They're told to rest a little longer time. 
until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so apparently, just as there's a number of those who are to be saved that God is aware of, there's a number of those who are to be martyred, that is, those who are slain and killed just as they themselves have been. And once those numbers are full, that's it. That, that marks the end. Um, now, in a broad sense, and I think I've touched on this before, but in a broad sense, the language scripturally and even in Revelation is that every Christian is a martyr. Jesus is called in chapter 1, the martyr, the witness, and so we are all witnesses. And then because Jesus is a witness unto death, those who are witnesses unto death, I mean, in that sense, even generically, you can say all Christians are witnesses unto death until our dying, oh gosh, even beyond death. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And one of the most beautiful blessings we have conformed in the image of Christ Jesus. When I am lifted up, Jesus says, when I am dying, that's when I draw all men to myself. As we are conformed into the image of Christ and die ourselves, and we are lifted up, as it were, we are put to death, we draw all our men, not the whole world as Christ does, but all our men to us so that in coming to see and pay respects and honors to us, of which none are due, they get to hear the preaching of Christ. That's a beautiful, beautiful Christological event to have a Christian funeral because just as Christ is lifted up and draws all men to yourself, you participate in that. You are put to death and you draw your men to yourself, which is in that instance to draw them to Christ so that they can hear the proclamation of his forgiveness of sins, of his defeat and victory over death. So this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. So yes, generally speaking, even in this, I mean, all Christians are martyrs. We're faithful and we bear witness unto death. And in fact, that's the very purpose you can look at John's gospel for this. That's the very purpose for which we're here. Jesus doesn't pray that we be taken out of this world, but that we be in this world, not of it, and that we be kept from the evil one. Our purpose here is to bear witness. Immediately, vocationally, um, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, like, that's the fundamental purpose. It's the fundamental purpose. Okay, and then, and then those who... Um, whose witnessing unto death take on this form that is so close to the cross where they're actually being put to death for the word of God, for the, the testimony concerning Jesus. That is so closely connected with Jesus that we actually call that subset capital M martyrs or martyrs proper. And that's really who we're referring to in, um, in Revelation uh, 6. But you know, that's why we don't need to pursue martyrdom. In the wide sense, every Christian is a martyr. We confess until our dying breath. And we know that Satan torments and opposes us until our dying breath. So our spiritual warfare is no different. So we recognize that in some Christians so honored by God, their confession unto death is, takes on a proximity and closeness to Christ's cross that we recognize them as, as martyrs proper, as the purest expressions of this. It's a beautiful reality. I mean, ugly on earth, just like Good Friday, but beautiful and good, just as the cross itself is. 
All right, well, that's, that's maybe all I have to say about the, uh, the fifth seal. On to the sixth. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Um, this is a big deal because so many of the Old Testament prophets, major and minor alike, refer to um, the shaking of the earth that takes place. So um, all localized earthquakes, and, and we even had Reardon point out like a first century example of this that was no doubt fulfill of, and a fulfillment of this, this sort of prophecy. Um, localized earthquakes are pictures of, of the spiritual reality, and what may indeed be a physical reality, who knows? We leave that an open question. But as the prophets testify to, the final days is a shaking of the earth. A shaking of the earth. And that's, so that's what we're to see in this earthquake, is a great shaking of all of the earth and all its powers. I looked and behold, there was an earthquake. Um, you can actually see here too, by the way, I haven't lined this up to make sure it's absolutely true, but I think at minimum it's generally true. You can see in what, in what progresses as an, um, an unraveling of creation via the Genesis, Genesis account. This is what I haven't vetted out to make sure it's absolutely you know, linear, chronological, or one thing after another. But if it isn't, it's darn close. So this shaking of the earth begins the unraveling of creation with the sixth seal, which of course makes perfect sense given that on the six days, God, after the sixth day, God um, rested from his work of creation. And so there's going to be these six things that are shaken at the sixth seal. All right, so he opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So there's earth, and the sun became black as sackcloth. I mean, again, okay, what you also want to see here, too, is don't, don't get too hyper-literal. Look here for the opposites. The earth is solid. Okay? Now what is solid is shaking. What is the sun? Pure light. Now the sun is black as sackcloth. Okay, so we don't need to get too wound up in the specifics here. What you need to see is that creation is, reverse, is reversing. What God ordained is now being reversed. Creation is falling apart and being undone systematically by God, by Christ, who opens this sixth seal. So the earth, which is solid, is shaking. The sun, which is, there's nothing brighter, uh, is black as sackcloth. The full moon becomes like blood. And again, just think of like the darkness therein. You can, I mean, of course, you can think of um, eclipses and this kind of thing. We had, uh, gosh, it was a long time ago already, maybe a decade already ago here in California, we had such bad fires in Southern California that even he, that here along the coast, you look up at the sun and the sun was blood red because the, the smoke had, and ash had so filled uh, the sky. Um, so, so again, um, the moon, which is to shine with pure, bright, white light reflected um, by the sun, is now um, reflecting the darkness of the sun in the form of you know, deep, dark, red blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now this is, again, it's not so much the point of like, huh, okay, so suns, you know, a bazillion miles away are now suddenly hurtling toward the earth and falling into it. No, that's not the point. The point is that which God has set, 
above are now coming below. It's the undoing of creation. Then you might, of course, just point and say comets or whatever it may be, but, or um, what are those things called when they <laughs> hit the earth? <laughs> I'm showing my ignorance here. Meteorites, I guess. Uh, but anyway, <sighs> though I think that that's all beside the point in trying to look at overly concrete examples of this. The stars which God has set above are coming below. They fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So here, too, you can see a return to the theme of the shaking. It's not just the earth, but it's the whole cosmos. It's the heavens and the earth being shook. And the sun and the moon are doing the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be doing, the heavenly bodies that most represent Christ and his church. We'll get to that in Revelation 12. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. It's like, the, the, it's like the sky itself. I think Brighton envisions it like the sky is like ripped down the middle and it just it goes like and wraps around the two spindles of the scroll. I think you could also just picture it like one of the spindles just rolling and the whole thing is rolled up. But the sky is, is rolled away. Um, there too, you can see a connection. I won't overplay it, but a connection between text and reality, word and creation such that even the sky can be described as a scroll. And that's intimately connected with the fact that Jesus is taking the second to the last, the penultimate seal, off of the scroll. So the scroll of the sky is rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. So you have, a, you have a, just a wiping out of the, of the uh, features of the landscape. Um, what else do you have here? Ah, uh, yes, verse 15. Okay, well, I guess I should say, okay, so where are the... So you've got the earth, one, the sun, two, the moon, three, the stars, four, the sky, five, the mountains and islands, okay, the, the fe geographical features or whatever, um, six, and then arguably here, just depending on how you want to see it, if you want to see that as the six right there, and then you want to see moving on, that's fine. Or if you want to see the seventh as man, you can do that here in this next verse. Either way, what seems to be clear is an undoing of creation, very closely linked with Genesis 1. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Again, this need not be taken in an overly literalistic way, as if all these people are really going to acknowledge, okay, well, this is in fact God and Jesus coming, and so um, we, better, we better go look for holes to hide ourselves in. That's poetically what's going on, you can see, is at the approach of God. And there are many scriptures that speak this way. But at the, at the second coming of Christ, at the unveiling of the Son of God, Think of it as, as his coming. 
His coming is so mighty and so powerful that the creation itself quivers. And all of these things that are so substantial, I mean, the very foundations upon which everything, I mean, the sun and the earth, it's just, everything is shaking in his presence and the sky is rolling up and it's like, I mean, you can almost like, like feel the molecules dispersing and reality just like fleeing away from his face. Not only because of who he is, but because of what he's come to do. And again, this is meant, this is meant to be so beautiful to us as Christians. I mean, for, for look, for the kings of the earth, well, that's not our home. We're strangers here, sojourners here. We are citizens of heaven. But for the kings of the earth and the great ones, that's not us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who weep, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this isn't us. The great ones, that's not us. The generals, the rich and the powerful, that's not us. Everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. Again, this just doesn't describe us at all. Um, so, so what is this? This is the enemies of God in fear. You know, this is the meaning of perfect love casts out all fear, that when Jesus comes, we would, we would long for his coming, and that when he comes, we would see him without fear, without shame, cleansed by his blood, standing before him in right consciences, fearing him, not fearing the end of the earth, not fearing the, the end of the things we have, but fearing him and longing for his coming, that the, that the new age, I mean, that we might be with him and that the new age might commence. So this is so, I mean, this is so strange because... Like, not classically what you would think of as a comforting set of verses, but if you're a Christian, you can't see it as otherwise. It's the shaking of all the bad. It's the final justice. All right, and then what do those who have rejected God do? What choice do they have? Nothing. Hide yourself in the earth. There's, um, I mean, there's very much symbolically, maybe even homiletically here, poetically, that I won't go into, but there's a sense in which they're hiding in the rocks like animals. So far have they fallen from God and from the image of God that they're behaving like animals and animals hiding in fear, not like men. There's also a sense in which this is um, like they're leaping into their graves because creation falls apart. Men are leaping into their graves. And you get that read where, where they, they actually give voice to the, to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. You know, this is where, like, they want to escape through death, but death is no escape. And again, as a Christian, it's just such a beautiful and glorious thing. Even, even David in his Psalms meditates on this. <laughs> if I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. <laughs> like, you can't escape God. And you see this last desperate escape, attempt to escape God. It's, I mean, it's so tragic for them. But as a Christian, again, like, this is as God wills, and this is what's right, and this is the pitiable state of mankind who rejects God and has no excuse for rejecting God because you can't hide from him, not in life, not in death, not outside of the hills, not inside of the hills. And you can see here, too, that there is something much worse than death. I mean, there are many, many things much worse than death. 
and it's just part of our foolish American culture that we fear death more than anything else. It's really one of our sickest perversions and the root of so many evils. Because death is way, way down on the list of things to fear. Everybody dies. I'm not talking about like being startled at like, oh, well, here's the time or something. I'm not talking about that kind of fear of death. I'm talking about like, like being petrified of passing through it and like, like ordering everything in the world and the government and the state and the economy so as to avoid death. It's just ridiculous. Death is not the greatest fear. Our greatest fear ought to be sin. Offending the one who is life. Offending the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell forever. That, that is our greatest fear. That is the thing worse than death. The thing worse than death is to sin. It would be better for us to die instantaneously than break one of God's commandments. I'm just speaking objectively, factually. Like that's, so, so you can see that here. Like for, for the fallen, is like the thing worse than death, finally they discover the thing worse than death is to face God. Um, why this is good news for Christians, too, is, I think, made so apparent in, um, at the end of verse 16. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. To us as Christians, there's a touch of, I don't know if humor is really the right word, amusement? A lamb is not a ferocious thing. And certainly not to us. The imagery of the Lamb is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very symbol of our redemption is to them a symbol of terror. The very symbol to us of our Lord's unimaginable kindness and tender mercies which are eternal and goodness which is deeper than all of our sins. This very symbol and image is to them hell, is to them death and worse than death. So we as Christians, I think, have great cause to rejoice that it's the wrath of the Lamb that they're afraid of, whereas the Lamb is the very symbol of our salvation and of mercy on sinners. I mean, quite pitiable. You see, even in this revelation, the call to repent. Like, who would want this as their end? So, so don't be unbelieving, but believe. Believe in the Lamb and have life in his name. And when this day comes, you won't be crying out to the hills, hide us, bury us. You'll be crying out to the Lamb, thanks be to God. Come, Lord Jesus. So verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Which this is also super refreshing because Christianity, especially kind of the liberal everyone gets in in the end type of Christianity like they have no place for Jesus as one who is actually wrathful and increasingly it seems we're, we're even told that like anger is inherently sinful well that can't be if God is angry anger can't be inherently sinful if the lamb is wrathful wrath can't be inherently sinful um, there's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong at all in fact that's the right thing Anger over sin is the right thing. A man who's not angered over sin uh, doesn't understand sin and certainly has no concept of justice. Uh, such a person is an, is an anomian, a lawless one. Christ is no lawless one. He's the law embodied. 
And so he's wrathful over sinners who have had their time to repent and receive the mercy of God, and they've refused it, and so they've chosen their portion, and now it's time to receive that portion. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know, there, from the psalm, and we, re, we repeat it in one of the settings of our liturgies. Um, oh, gosh, this is when I need people in the audience to help me out, but it's, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch the exact wording, but it's, with, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. O Lord, if you should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? That's how it goes. O Lord, if you should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. So you see, like, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? No one. They're all laying down and cowering and trying to dig themselves into the earth to avoid it. Who can stand? And the psalmist answers, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the fear of God. Like, you see the two different fears? You see the fear that is like hatred and, te- and then terror? And then you see the fear that is like the deepest love and respect. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so on the day of judgment, I mean, in this, using this imagery, of course, we do stand. We do stand, and we stand without fear. Because we know the mercy of God. And when we see the Lamb coming, we don't see a terror. We see our Savior. We see the one who so loved us. He gave his life for us and not for us only, but for the whole world. Fills us with life and light and joy. So look, um, that's the last day. <laughs> I've often thought like all the... All the um, I never really read any of them, so maybe this is unfair, but like all the Left Behind series and all the, all the media that presents like the apocalypse and the end times and darkness and danger and uh, terror and fear, and it's like no Christian ought to be feeling that. We ought to see that and resist that and turn our eyes to Christ and in Christ have that perfect love which casts out all that nonsense fear. And not fear that, but fear God. And fear Him on account of His forgiveness. I mean, it's, it's darkness for the world. It's the greatest light for us. As Christ comes, it's darkness and terror for the world. It's light and salvation for us. So where Christianity tries to paint like the last days is these dark and terrifying times. It's like really doing a disservice to us as Christians. Jesus says when He's talking about all the end times events, He says, lift up your eyes. For your redemption is drawing near. Not <laughs> cower in fear. Lift up your eyes. Well, that's enough on that. Anyway, I think I could spend an eternity just there on the sixth seal and the glory of the Lamb, who is quite capable of anger, who is quite capable of justice, who will indeed mete it out, and yet who is also quite capable of grace and mercy. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus the Lamb. Then, we get into an interlude, a beautiful interlude before the seventh and final seal. 
So we're going to see this pattern repeat itself where there are these interludes. Again, the structure of Revelation is stunningly simple because you have, these, you have these seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of incense, and then you've just got these interludes stuck, I think in the first two cases for, for certain, between the sixth and the seventh, you've got these interludes and these, these moments of comfort, great comfort and reassurance for God's people. Um, so chapter seven is just this. It is an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, the seventh being the, the um, concluding seal and really the closing of this age, the end of the earth. So let's jump into the seal. What we see here in chapter 7 is the church um, as a coin with two sides. We see two sides of the church. And so in the first half of chapter 7, we see the church on earth, and it's depicted as the church militant. It is not at all depicted in the way we see with our eyes, where we see the church as a poor, miserable, broken, fragmented... uh, how How does that hymn go? with schisms rent asunder, with heresies oppressed. Yeah, exactly. And that's how we see the church. That's not how heaven sees the church. So that's the first side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is, um, that's the church militant. The other side of the coin is the church triumphant, the church in heavenly glory. And the vision in the second half of chapter 7 is a vision that is sort of all three, past, present, and future, of, of what the church looks like in heaven. So this is such a beautiful, beautiful interlude here. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, John says, After this, so after the opening of the sixth seal, after the shaking of the earth, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Here once again, we see, I think in every single instance, and maybe I'm off by like one or two instances, but I kind of doubt it. In every single instance, numbers are used symbolically. And here too, you see the symbolism of the four corners of the earth. It's not a flat earth theory going on here. Just the number of the earth is four. There's four directions. It's how we experience it existentially. And so you have the four uh, angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. So you want to picture this. I want to picture this in your head. The four are holding back the winds, and then as the sun rises, this angel is rising up with it. At the same blinding light of the sun, this, this angel rising up with it. Ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. So a seal is a thing you stamp into wax. I mean, after all, when we're looking at these seals, they're, they're stamped wax. They, they close things. Um, and really what they do is the, on the seal is the mark of the owner. On the seal of the mark is the owner. You know, in order for Jesus to own that scroll and own that future of the salvation of God's people in the new heavens and the new earth, he has to purchase it with his blood, as we saw. And, and then he becomes the owner capable of opening those seals. In a sense, he becomes the the one to whom the letter is addressed, if you want to look at the dialogue between the Father and the Son, like Isaiah has it. But, be that as it may, seals are marks of ownership. So this, this angel, we'll talk next week, we've run out of time this week, I've just got a couple minutes left. But some see in this angel Christ. We'll talk about the merits of that, uh, or demerits as it may be. But 
um, this angel rises with the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. This is also a glimpse into how we know absolutely nothing about angels, how they affect not only the affect and control not only um, the weather, as we call it, um, but even affect and control things like our moods and temperaments. <laughs> we see that we're going through uh, 1 Samuel, and boy, do you see that in spades um, with Saul and even to a lesser degree with David. But we have no idea of, I mean, we have very, we have only what the scriptures give us, and they don't give us hardly anything in terms of what all the angels control and influence. But the truth is there's angels and demons all around us. There's just no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. I don't know how much stock to put in it, but accounts of many, many saints who have uh, been very near death or, or um, you know, clinically died or come back, it's one of the things they actually testify to um, is seeing angels and demons around um, as, oppo <laughs> as opposed to like what is common in paganism, this friendly angel of light that comes up to you, this ball of light and ton of light where everything is happy even if you are a complete pagan and wretched sinner your whole life. Gee, I wonder who that might be masquerading as an angel of light. Um, now, the, but the accounts of the saints, whether you, you know, how much stock you put into that, but, but suddenly being aware and being able to, to some extent, even see and visualize that above us, uh, all around us, is part of this earth. Um, this is Ephesians, the, the prince of the power of the air, where Paul talks about that. This is what we would call the air, this invisible realm that is part of this world where the angels have their interactions and discourse, good and evil. Daniel, of course, is full of this. Uh, politic and talking about angels um, power over political powers on earth angels are so much more involved than we have any idea and of course we even saw the angels of the seven churches so you can see that um, we've got this really foolish sort of mindset of like the angels are up in heaven and maybe they come down once in a while to help us it would probably be an error in the opposite direction, but it would be more accurate to rather perceive like an ocean of angelic beings between us and the heavenly throne. That would probably get you closer to the truth. It's an ocean of diversity, angelic beings, good and evil. Okay, um, so, so you've got these angels. They're in charge of the wind. You've got this angel rising up. He's got the seal of the living God, the stamp of ownership. Um, they, uh, this, this same angel with the stamp of ownership of, of God's living seal cries out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the earth and the sea. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Like there were four destructive forces in the first four seals. Here are four destructive forces in the winds um, that are kind of like ultimately destructive. Hold those back until we've got the foreheads of all God's servants sealed. Now, what does that mean? That means marked with the stamp of ownership. We might just put it plainly this way, marked with God's name. That's precisely. Now, when are we marked with God's name? Well, 
every good Lutheran knows this, and probably most good Christians do, when we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that language, into the name, we are stamped and marked with God's name. Um, we're out of time. This is the language of the sphragas, the seal, and we'll talk about what that even means in the first century in terms of the secular use of the sphragas on, on soldiers and whatnot. Um, but we are, we are sealed with God's seal. We are soldiers of the living God. We are children of the living God. We are uh, bought at a price. We are not our own. We are members of his family, purchased and won by the blood of Christ. And so we'll take a look at these themes uh, when we have more time next week. The Lord be with you.